You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. What a week of celebrations it had been. The Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem. As you turn in your Bible to John chapter 8, you can begin turning there now, John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. We're going to recall what we learned three weeks ago. Not all of you were here three weeks ago, the Sunday before Easter, but many of you were. There we learned that on this particular day that we're still reading about, John 7, John 8, all the same day, that people came from all over Israel to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. People would come and all around the city as well as within different courtyards within the city, people would build these tent-like structures out of sticks and palm branches. And they referred to them as tabernacles. This was very deliberate. This was designed by God, administrated in the Old Testament, to remind the people on an annual basis that your ancestors, your ancestors, were led by the hand of God out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness to the promised land. And for 40 years, God provided, God protected, God led them through the wilderness. And so that God's people would not forget, he wanted them on an annual basis to come to Jerusalem and to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. Throughout the week, there are a variety of festivities, a variety of celebrations. One we learned about three weeks ago was known as the... uh, the water ceremony, in which a priest would take each day a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple itself and pour that water around the altar. And it was most likely in that very scenario, in that very setting, that a voice rang out above the noise of the large crowd. A voice that said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It was our Lord Jesus. On that same week, probably the most festive of all the celebrations during the week is one that happened in a part of the temple complex known as the treasury. There was a section of the court of women that um, people would bring their offerings and they would put it in one of the marked boxes. There in that part of the temple, there were these four extremely tall lampstands. I think we have some artist renditions of these that are probably very good. Um, ever wondered, you'd hear about the temple, a lot of times people think of the building itself. Only the priests were allowed in that front part. But you can see all these concentric courtyards. This would be known as the courtyard of women. Let's zoom in. I think we have a slide that's a little closer. Um, You see these four large lampstands? Well, of course, these are artist renditions. There were no cameras. Uh, There were no drones flying around taking photos back then. But uh, you can see in each corner of this court these four large lampstands. If you look at the ceiling in this room, picture a lampstand about three times that height. About three times. They were huge. Each of these lampstands had at the top four bowls. Each of those bowls had about 10 gallon of olive oil. So at this feast, they would find some young, strong Levites. (laughs) I emphasize young and strong. (laughs) To carry up long ladders, you can see here the uh, artist has a ladder pictured there. 
They would carry 10 gallons. I don't know that they did it all at once, but they would carry 10 gallons of olive oil up there and pour it into each of these 40 bowls. Excuse me, 16 bowls. So four lampstands, each having four bowls, 16 bowls. They would pour 10 gallons into each of those bowls, and then they would take some discarded clothing, make into this huge wick, and light them. Now, you might be saying, well, that's really something, but you know what? We live in an era of electricity and of lights all over the place. All we have to do is flip a switch. And here in our culture, you can hardly go anywhere unless you're out in a national park or something and not be around electric lights. Maybe some of you have been in a third world culture visiting or doing mission work and And you remember what it's like to be in a setting where there's no electric lights at all. It's dark. It's dark at those places. You can see stars you didn't know existed. Well, remember that these people of Palestine in this era did not have any electricity. They did not have any electric lights. And on this festive occasion, each night, these priests would light those those 16 big bowls up there. And the light. The rabbis record for us that that light would emanate out over the walls of the temple complex into the courtyards around the city and that all the homes, all the courtyards around the city would have that light of these four huge lampstands. Now, if you want to come with me in your imagination to Jerusalem, we might picture during the night there would be these uh, Levites who would take a torch in each hand and this group of godly men would, would dance around that part of the courtyard holding a torch in each hand. And, and as these Levites would dance, there would be other Levites playing lyres and cymbals and, and different kinds of musical instruments. And there would be a choir standing on some nearby steps singing howl psalms, praise psalms. This would have been a phenomenally festive occasion. It would go on for hours during the night. And if you and I would visit this part of the courtyard, the treasury, on a particular morning, maybe we could still smell the burnt oil in our nostrils. Maybe if we looked down at our feet underneath our sandal is still the soot from the now extinguished wicks. And as we stand there in that setting, once again, once again, we hear a voice calling out above the crowd, I am the light of the world! Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's John 8, 12. That's the voice of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I'll tell you what, friends. We're going to look at verses 12 through 30, but we're just going to park on verse 12 for a while. Phenomenal statement. This is the second time Jesus had made an emphatic statement like this. I am Some of you were here not too many weeks ago where six months previous, up in Capernaum in Galilee, Jesus had stood in front of a packed synagogue and he said, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And now down in Judea, six months later, he says, I am the light of the world. I am. Think about that. I am. There's connotations of deity there, of Jesus' godness. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked the burning bush, the voice coming out of the burning bush, who should I say is sending me? God spoke from that bush and says, tell tell them, I am has sent you. And now in that temple courtyard on this day, Jesus once again says those astonishing, gripping words, I am. 
You know what? If you're able to be with us next Sunday, I'm going to lead us. I have the privilege of leading us further on in John 8, where Jesus is going to say something as equally astonishing as today, if not moving it up a notch. Next Sunday in John 8, we're going to hear Jesus saying, Before Abraham was, I am. Gives you chills. But here on this day, toward the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus says, I am. I am. I and no other. I and I alone am the light of the world. No other religious leaders can make a claim like this. You look inside for some sort of inner light, you won't find it. That Jesus alone is the light of the world. He alone can lead us to salvation. And he says, I am the light. Gladine and I enjoyed having four of the grandkids camping out at our house last night. <laughs> for family devotions, I told the kids, I said, uh, I want to help get you ready for Sunday. <laughs> and so we read this verse, and I asked the kids, what's, what's so good about light? What's so good about light? Well, obvious thing is light shows us where to go. You try walking around in the dark. You know, you're going to stumble over something. Light shows us where we're going. And you know what? That's true. That's true. Light not only shows us where we're going with our physical eyes, but this light, the light of the world, shows us where to go spiritually as well. In our culture, and probably in just about every culture in the world, light has been a symbol of understanding, of understanding what is true. And, and we say that here in American English, don't we? You know, if someone's been real confused about something, how does that work, or what's that mean? And then all of a sudden, they, their eyes open up, and, you know, they get it. What do we say? Oh, I see the light has come on. Or who turned the lights on? You know? and, and we say that when we're referring to someone understanding something. The lights come on. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He is the one who explains to us God, explains to us ourselves, explains to us how we can be right with God. Jesus is the one who helps us understand what matters for eternity. But you know, light in just about every culture also symbolizes morality. That if someone is evil, we say, oh, he's in darkness. Or even popularized in movies. They're the dark side. You know, we still do it, don't we? Where if someone's morally good, we say, well, they're, they're light. They're in the light. Those are good. And so when Jesus announces to that crowd, I am the light of the world, it's not wrong to think that he's talking about, I'm the one who brings understanding to God and God's ways. I am the one who brings God's morality rightness, righteousness. That's not wrong. But I would encourage us before we leave that subject too quickly to remember who Jesus was talking to. He was talking to a Jewish crowd. It was the Feast of the Tabernacles and Jesus had in front of him a lot of religious people. people in fact, a lot of religious leaders. We're going to meet them in a few minutes. And those people would have been very familiar with their Bibles. Their Bible was Genesis to Malachi. They would be very familiar with their Bibles. And I'm sure when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, certain verses from their Bible probably came to mind. I wonder if maybe some of them thought of Psalm 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Or Psalm 60, verse 19, the Lord will be your everlasting light. Or a verse that was commonly read at the Feast of the Tabernacles, Zechariah 14, 7, there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither night, day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. It could be that some of these people heard that verse quoted just hours before. I wonder if some of the Jewish people who heard Jesus say it that day there in the temple courtyard, we're recalling certain messianic prophecies. Certain prophecies about God's coming anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah. Verses like Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. And I wonder when Jesus stood there and said, I am the light. If some of the people began to question, is he making claims of being the Messiah? Is he making claims to be the Savior that God would send one day? But can I ask us to tighten our focus even a bit more? Jesus wasn't merely talking in generalities. I bring understanding. I bring morality. He wasn't merely speaking of Jewish recalling of Bible verses. Who was he talking to? A Jewish crowd. When was he talking to them? What was going on? The Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of the Tabernacles was a time to remember the Exodus. The time to remember that God had taken the people out of slavery and led them to the Promised Land. Why, why the lamps? Why the huge lampstands? Well, let me test your memory. Some of you are not familiar with the Bible, and that's fine. Everybody starts somewhere. Start here. But some of you are familiar with your Bibles. When the children of Israel were out in the wilderness, how did God lead them? By what means did he lead them? During the day, he led them by a pillar of cloud. And at nighttime, that cloud became a pillar of fire. A pillar of fire. The lampstands burning to remind the people that God led our ancestors out of bondage through the wilderness to the promised land with a pillar of fire. That pillar of fire provided a number of things for the children of Israel. For one thing, it provided direction. It showed them where to go. I'm reading now from Exodus 13:21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And so for 40 years, if that pillar of fire started moving, guess what everyone did? They moved with it. He led them. He led them for 40 years at nighttime by a pillar of fire. They would break camp, move into position, and follow. That pillar of fire not only provided direction, but it provided protection. You know, probably one of people's favorite stories from the Exodus is the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, just to briefly remember that with you, God led them. He led them to the shores of the Red Sea. And they're standing there at the shore of the Red Sea with no bridge. There was no way to get across. And while you're standing there looking across that body of water, what's happening behind you? Here comes the Egyptian charioteers. Or we would say in modern army talk, 
Here come the tanks. 600 chariots coming up behind you. We're trapped! And, and you can imagine the terror. Some of your parents, you imagine gathering your children close and thinking, we're doomed. We're going to be killed. We can't go forward. There's the sea. We can't go back. There's the Egyptian army. We're doomed. Now, we usually remember the part, and rightly so, of God miraculously dividing the Red Sea at the staff of Moses. But while that was happening in front, what's happening behind? What did the pillar do? It moved from the front of the camp to the back of the camp. And that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, stood behind the people and between them and the Egyptians and miraculously shine light upon the Israelites and darkness upon the Egyptians. And that pillar of fire stood all night long protecting the people as they crossed the Red Sea. That pillar of fire provided direction. That pillar of fire provided protection. And the pillar of fire was always there just to provide presence, God's presence. I mean, can you imagine being out there for 40 years and wondering, where are we going? What's going to happen next? And You know, you've been through times like that in your life, haven't you? If you're more than 10 or 12 years old, you've probably had experiences in your life where you wonder, what's next? Where are we going with this? And it seems confusing. It seems dark. Like, what's going to happen? But the children of Israel could always lift their eyes and see that cloud or to see that pillar of fire. He was continuously present with them. In fact, you know how Moses ends the book of Exodus? It's interesting. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. That's how he ends the book of Exodus. So all the people for the whole Exodus could look up and see God's presence. That pillar of fire provided a reminder, I am with you. So what was going through the minds of the people that day is Jesus said, I am the light of the world. <laughs> he is the Savior not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. John, how did John begin his gospel? You can read this in one four one nine says, the, the, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The true light that gives light to everyone. Now this would have blown the minds of a lot of the hearers there in the temple courtyard that day. I am the light of the world. Not just of the Jews, but of the world. And I was meditating on that this past week, and I got thinking about our church here, and how we have sent from these very chairs that you're sitting on, from these chairs, we have sent our people, our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the dark corners of the world with the light of the gospel. Now, what hope do we have? What hope do we have that they'll see any fruit of their labors? What hope do we have that the mission of Christ will be successful? Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And I got thinking, he is the light of the world to the Pei tribe. And he's the light of the world to the Rangi tribe. And he's the light of the world to the Italians and the North Africans and to the Mexicans and the Brazilians and to the people of the Cameroon people in your neighborhood, in my neighborhood. He is the light of the world. There is no other ultimate light. John Piper said it like this. 
If there's going to be light for the world, it will be Jesus. It is Jesus or darkness. There is no third alternative, no other light. Jesus is the light of the world. So how are we supposed to respond to that? If we were there that day and heard Jesus say this, what are we supposed to do with this? Look at John 8, 12. Jesus said, whoever follows me, whoever follows me. Jesus is not static. He's not just standing around. He's dynamic. He's going somewhere. He calls us to follow him as he leads us through this air between the gardens, as he leads us through this wilderness in which we live, this fallen world. He's leading us toward the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. And he says, follow me. As we talked about this last night with the grandkids, I said, I said to Titus, Titus is six. I said, buddy, if a neighbor kid of yours that you knew was a bad kid, you knew he was a bad kid, and he says, Titus, come with me. Would you go with him? No. Why not? I can't trust him. Exactly. So when Jesus says, come follow me, that clearly implies we trust him. We believe in him. We believe in him. We say, I, I want to entrust myself to him. I, I, I want to devote my life to him, my eternity to him. I, I trust him and I will follow him. Where he goes, I will go. He will be my Savior, my Lord. I want, I want to find joy in obeying him. And Jesus says, for those who follow me will not live in darkness. Kids, what's so bad about darkness? What's so bad about darkness? Well, you know what, adults, if we look at our Bibles, I did a word search, and I, there were too many. <laughs> I thought, I don't, have time to, I don't have time to read all these. There's so many. Look up the word dark. Just do, get on your Bible program or get on one of the free apps and look up the word dark or darkness. It is astonishing, this theme in the Bible, darkness and light. It begins in Genesis 1 and it ends in Revelation 22. Darkness and light. Darkness in the Bible depicts willful, foolish ignorance of God and his ways. Let me say that again. In the Bible, darkness depicts willful, foolish ignorance of God and his ways. I picked one verse. Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Darkness represents evil. Proverbs 4.19, for instance, says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In the Bible, darkness represents misery and the curse of death. Isaiah 8.22 says, Distress and darkness the gloom of anguish. Darkness reminds us of sinners' enslavement to the evil taskmaster, Satan himself. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. And then one thing 
that darkness represents makes the hair stand up on our necks. Darkness speaks of God's judgment and hell itself. Jesus spoke of hell frequently. In one of the stories he told about hell, someone who refused, refused to repent and put his faith in Messiah, Jesus said, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's so bad about darkness? Darkness is horrible and horrifying. Listen, my friends. Listen, my friends. Apart from the intervening grace of God, we are all children of darkness. And it was into that darkness that Jesus spoke those glorious words. I am the light of the world. Whoever would follow him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. And if you're here today as a believer, my friend, my Christian friend, is this not your testimony? Is not this my testimony? Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness speaking of creation, has shown in our hearts recreation, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today as a Christian, you just might remember that in your B.C. days, your before Christ days, you didn't, you didn't love Christ, you didn't admire Christ, you didn't desire Christ. Christ had no attraction to you. He was not beautiful to you, desirable to you. And then one day, God in His sovereign grace shone the light of life into your darkened soul. And on that day, you looked at Jesus Christ and you saw the glory of God in His face. You saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, Jesus Christ looked so desirable to you. He looked so beautiful to you that you wanted Christ. I want Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to follow Christ. I was thinking about that verse in 2 Corinthians 4. My mind kept going to an old hymn of, of Charles Wesley. Where he said, Long my imprisoned spirit life, fast bound in sin and, and nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. Hmm. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Is that your testimony? Is that your testimony? That he has shined into your darkened soul the light of life. And you woke to Christ. The chains of your old bondage to sin and Satan falling away. And that you rose and followed the light of life. Jesus Christ. You know... How did many of the people there in that temple courtyard respond to Jesus that day? We won't have time to explain all of these verses, but let me read to you now, without pause, 
verses 13 through 30. You follow along. It's a fairly long section. But as we read that, I want you to pay attention to how people responded to the light of life. And then I'll pause and comment just briefly on that. John chapter 8, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I have come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you. And much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. By the way, before we get too excited about verse 30, let's hang on because next Sunday we're going to read what followed about those who believed in him. It seemed to be rather shallow and temporary. But how did the people respond to him? Well, to summarize this rather long passage, I would say it this way, that they listened to Jesus and decided that they would be Jesus' judge. They thought of themselves as intellectually and morally superior to Jesus and that they had the right to judge him. They had the right to decide whether he was true or false, genuine or fake. And they challenged his credentials. When they began to question his father, they might have been alluding to rumors that had gone around Galilee that Jesus' mother was pregnant before he and she and Joseph began living as husband and wife. Who's your father? They questioned Jesus' origin. Look at verse 25. Who do, you, who do you think you are, basically? Who do you think you are? You know, and as I, as I think about what the Pharisees are doing there, you know what comes to my mind? They had this preconception of what the Messiah would be. They wanted to design a customized Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a political Messiah who would come and be their Messiah and against those people out there. We want a political military Messiah that will come and rescue us from these Roman oppressors. We want rid of those guys. And Jesus, if you're not that kind of guy, we don't want you. And they were rejecting Jesus coming and announcing his own Messiahship. 
Now we can sit here today and tisk-tisk and shake our heads at those Pharisees for such presumption. But if you'll excuse me for a minute, can we not be guilty of a very similar pattern? Or we want a Republican Jesus. Or we want a Democrat Jesus. And we try to get Jesus to conform to our political preferences. And we use Jesus to promote our own cause. And I want to strongly caution us against that temptation. We don't get Jesus to support our causes. He's God come in the flesh. We yield to him, not he to us. We don't make Jesus into what we want him to be. Jesus is. I am. We don't make him into something. We don't force him into our mold so that he can be our hero. No, we, we bend the knee to him. We, we bend the knee to the great I am, Jesus Christ. They didn't like what Jesus was saying about himself, so they rejected him. Jesus points out to these people that when they walked into their supposed courtroom, they'd taken the wrong seat. They'd taken the wrong seats. Theirs was not the judge's seat. Theirs was the defendant's seat. He was the judge. And Jesus says some frightening things in this passage. He says, there's going to be a day when you seek me and you won't find me. He's alluding to the fact that he will, six months later, be hung on the cross. Forty days after that, ascend to heaven. He says his time wasn't yet. It's fascinating to read the Gospel of John and notice how many times John says that. It wasn't his time yet. Jesus' death on the cross was according to a foreordained schedule. And even though people tried to kill him at different times, they couldn't do it because it wasn't God's foreordained plan. I'm sure six months down the road, at that Passover in the spring, many of these religious leaders were probably uh, you know, rubbing their hands together like, we finally got this guy, he's dead, we won. But you know what? They couldn't keep the stone in its place. And three days later, the light of the world burst out of that grave. And he showed himself to be the light of the world. Many of the people, many of the people in that temple complex rejected Jesus. How about you today, my friend? Are you following the light of the world? Are you trusting him and following him? Jesus promised, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. When Jesus says in verse 28, I'm going away and you will seek me and not find me, he's saying, there will come a day, there will come a day when the day of mercy, the door of mercy, the door of mercy will be closed. And the door of judgment will be opened. People sometimes presumptuously think that the day of grace, the day of mercy is unending. It's just going to go on and on, and I'll just, I'll just come to them whenever I'm ready. Let me just sow my oats, let me enjoy life here, and just do what I want to do, and I'll come to Jesus when, when I feel like it. A long time ago, there was a man who said, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. Do you need me to read that again? 
You cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon may be too late. There will come a day when it's too late. That the doors of mercy will be shut by the holder of the keys. The door of judgment will be opened. The Bible says it's appointed unto man to die. And then the judgment. Are you ready for that day? The Bible is clear in its warning. Second Corinthians says, now is the day of salvation. God spoke through Ezekiel the prophet hundreds of years before that. Turn and live. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I strongly encourage you, children, teens, adults that are yet living in darkness, to turn to the light of life and say, give me your light of life. And he will. And you can join that happy band of people who are following him. In a few minutes... Those who are believers are going to join together and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Jesus said, in this passage, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. When you have lifted up, no doubt, a reference to the crucifixion six months from this point. We come to God through Christ, through that one who was lifted up on our behalf.